I love the way you guys had the, uh, the three money boxes up there. Uh, my seven-year-old gets pocket money and she has three money boxes. One's called give, one's called spend and one's called invest. Uh, and that money has to be used to make money. And she's learned very quickly how to do that. Not, still not sure whether it's a good thing or not. Um, there's this guy. He's a professional mugger. And uh, as he's always ready to work, he sees a rich guy coming down the street, so he quickly ducks around the corner, pulls on his balaclava, waits for him to get close, and he jumps out, sticks a gun in his rib, and he says, give me all of your money. And the man in the suit looks quite indignant. He says, you can't do this. I'm a Commonwealth politician. I represent the people, including you. And he says, well, in that case, he digs in a bit hard. He says, give me all of my money. <laughs> Money is something that you can use for good or bad. Something we have to learn how to handle. And as Chris said earlier, it's actually something the Bible says heaps about. Some people say that uh, the last thing to be converted is your wallet. And it's sort of funny that we're a bit like that because... uh, Despite the Bible having so much to say about money, we don't always reflect uh, God's values in the way we view money and in the way we use money. And this is one of many passages that uh, the Bible includes about money. Interestingly enough, Matthew is the only other gospel that has these two passages sitting side by side uh, where you've got... uh, Sorry, Matthew's the only other passage that has the do not worry section uh, of this passage. Uh, And Luke is the only one that has the rich fool sitting side by side uh, with these uh, these two together. Uh, And it gives us this great perspective uh, on why Jesus said what he said. Um, It gives you the real uh, richness of understanding what it was that Jesus was actually on about. Uh, In Matthew, this uh, this little speech is, or this part of Jesus' teaching is placed in the Sermon on the Mount and Luke seems consistent with that. It says there was a crowd of many thousands that were gathered. And someone in the crowd steps forward and he says, Hey Jesus, can you please tell my brother to share his inheritance with me? A little bit odd. Other people had been sort of asking different kinds of questions, a little bit more sort of theologically based and uh, a bit more about God and how God uh, can intervene in your life and so on. But out of the blue comes this question. Hey, I want my brother to share his inheritance with me. Likelihood is that this was, uh, the guy asking the question was not the older son. He was probably a younger brother. And tradition was in that culture that the eldest son got a double share of the inheritance. So if there was four sons, the estate would be divided into five parts two-fifths to the first son and then equally after that. And so this is probably, we don't know, but this is probably someone saying, hey, my brother got more than me. Make him share. These days you would go off to see a lawyer (laughs) and you would say, my parents didn't provide for me properly. Uh, But Jesus, true to form, is not really interested in the guy's inheritance. He's interested in the guy's heart And so he goes straight to that issue. He dismisses 
the argument about the inheritance. He says, I'm not here to arbitrate inheritance disputes. I'm here and I'm interested in your heart. And as a side note, I've got to say, when I pray and I ask, sometimes I get that same response. Andy, listen to your question. Listen to what you're asking. What is that saying about your heart, Andy? Is that really what you need? And when I articulate my questions, my my requests to God, God sometimes goes, wrong question. You don't even need an answer to that question. Look at this. And he goes, and I go, ouch. So Jesus starts off with a warning. He says, hey, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. John did a great job of articulating that uh, in the passage. Or put another way, life is not defined by what you have even when you have a lot. Life is not defined by what you have even if you have a lot. And then to illustrate this point, Jesus tells this parable of the rich guy who turns out to be a fool. Um, when David and I were emailing back and forth, uh, he asked me, um, what would, uh, what's on you know, when you come? What's going to happen? And I said, the rich fool. And he said, yeah, but what will you be speaking about? Um, and, and I saw in the program there was the rich young fool. I thought maybe that had sort of filtered through somehow. Um, but we don't know at the start of this parable, you don't know that the guy's a fool. He's a fool at the end because God calls him a fool and he behaves like a fool. And, what, and I'm not going to retell the story. You heard it when it was read. But what do we observe about this guy? What made him so foolish? What was it? Can we put our finger on the things that he got so wrong and what can we learn from it? I'm going to, I'm going to try and tell you five things. Um, and if you're a note taker, hopefully by now you've got a piece of paper that you've taken, at least one, and hopefully you've got a pen that's been circulated. If you're a note taker, go ahead and take notes, that's fine. Can you please do me a favour, can you leave one page blank? I'll tell you what for at the very end. All right, leave one page blank. So here's, here are five things that we can observe about the rich fool that can tell us about ourselves and it can tell us about God. First of all, this guy thinks that his stuff is his. He thinks that his stuff is his. Listen to his language. Uh, my barns, my crops my grain, my goods. And I'll say to myself, and I'm going to spin the words around a little bit, I have plenty of good things laid up for myself for many years. It's me, my, I, and it's mine. You don't have to teach people that. Anyone who's got little kids, uh, very quickly your kids learn to do this. Mine. It's a great move. The New Testament does not reinforce ownership. It reinforces the concept of stewardship. That is, if you've got a king, then you don't own anything. Everything belongs to the king. I'll say that again. If you have a king, you don't own anything. Everything belongs to the king. We just get to have stuff for a while in our control. And when we're finished with it, our job to either hand it on or hand it back to its true owner. The Bible tells us that the 
Earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It is literally not ours. It's literally not ours. That includes our money. It includes our real estate. It includes our buildings. It includes everything. God lets you have it. And you've got to, I've got to say this. I think this is a dangerous question to pose, but I'm going to do it anyway because it starts with if I was God. Okay. It's, it's a really bad way to start because it puts, brings God down to my level and it makes me make sense of God by putting, imposing my brain on his. Uh, but if I was God, if I was trying to achieve something in the world, who would I pump my resources into? Those people who are going to help my cause or those people who are not? Who would God put resources with? Those people who are with his cause and will help it or those people who will not? If, if I was in that position, I would say, you know what? You're doing the kind of thing that I'm trying to achieve here. Go, do it more. And for those people who are not, I would say, well, you know what? I feel like that's a waste. Something to think about. The rich man, the second thing that we can learn about him, he forgets to be thankful. He has a bumper crop. He has, he's a farmer, obviously, and he has a massive crop, so big that his barns can't store it. He, he actually tells a bit of a fib. He says, oh, I've got nowhere to put my crops. No, he does. He's got plenty of places to put his crops. He's just got more crops than he knows what to do with. And he does not turn his heart or his mind to say, thank you. You don't read anywhere where he says, he paused and said thanks, or he made an altar to the Lord, or whatever. Instead of being thankful, he's actually full of concern about how he can preserve his abundance. He actually sees his plenty as a problem. He had a, he had a problem before. He wasn't sure whether his crop would come good or not. Now he's got a new problem. What do I do with it? How do I keep it? How do I protect it? How do I save it? He does nothing to recognise or express gratitude to the God who blessed his undertaking. We're going to come to some questions after this in a, in a second. Uh, let me finish the list. Number three. The rich man gets more than he hoped for but he still keeps the excess. I don't know about you, I think, there are, I think there are real limits on what we can honestly say that we need. There are real limits on what we can honestly say that we need and we're very easy and very quick to adjust up and very slow and reluctant to adjust down. The Bible teaches us that we ought to be loving people not money. In fact, someone I've read somewhere, uh, we're supposed to love people and use money, not use people and love money. Uh, but wealth is a gift from God. Wealth, if you have it, is something that God gives. And we all have it. We sit here and, and I know we, we sometimes say, well, I'm not wealthy. That's because we compare this way with each other. Turn your eyes away from each other for a minute and look across the sea. We're a little isolated from all that. But we are amazingly wealthy. 
we're clothed, we're fed. We have this incredibly, incredible social safety net here in Australia. We have peace. I don't fear for my safety when I walk down the road, nor for my kids. I haven't lost any family members to random acts of political violence to make a point. We are amazingly blessed. And all of that is a gift from God, including our wealth. And God expects us to go then and use it for his purposes. Basically, hey, he's put it in your hand. What are you going to do with it? That's the notion. The rich fool is not looking to any opportunity to share or to bless others. He's actually saying, look, I've got way more than I needed. And, and I wonder what Jesus would have said about a, about a rich man who said, look, my barns are now full, I'm going to give the rest away. I don't know what he would have said about that. But it would have been a slightly better proposition, I would have thought, than a man who says, my barns are all full, I've still got stuff left, I need another barn. No, you don't need another barn. You need a head check. The rich man worries. Fourthly, the rich man worries, even in his wealth. He says, when I store up lots of stuff for myself, then I will have no worries. I'll be able to put my feet up and say, hey, take it easy, you've got a great nest egg. But has he not already just proven his own theory to be wrong? I'm sure prior to harvest, he would have said, if I have full barns, I'll be okay. But now he's got more than he can store. And he's not okay, he's worried. Oh no, what will I do? Like when your business grows so big and you think, oh, what a headache. How about, what a blessing. He has a bumper crop and he doesn't know what to do with it. He worries in his wealth. He doesn't worry in his shortage, he worries in his wealth. Proverbs 13 says, A a person's riches may ransom their life, but the poor cannot respond to threatening rebukes. If you think wealthy people don't have a worry, you're wrong. Wealthy people do have a worry, just shortage of cash is not one of the worries that is on their list. They have plenty of other worries. In fact, this guy can demonstrate, wealth brings worry and it brings incredible responsibility. Lastly, fifthly, this guy has a covetous heart. This guy has a covetous heart. What do I mean by that? Well, before I say anything more, I'm going to confess to you, I think I have a covetous heart. I'm going to tell you why I say that in a minute. But let me just distinguish three things. First of all, uh, firstly, envy. Envy, jealousy and coveting. I want to just distinguish those three things. Envy, envy is resentment of a person because they have something that you don't. You might think you, you should have it, you might think you deserve it, you may think you, just, you would just like to have it. But envy is a feeling directed at a person. I envy that person. I actually resent the person because they have something that I don't. Jealousy. Jealousy is a strong desire to have something that actually should rightfully be mine. When I see my wife spending time with other people and I wish she was with me, I'm jealous. But that's because that relationship should rightfully be mine. The Bible says God is jealous for the praises of his people. When we turn away and adore other things, God says, hey, I'm jealous about that. That's mine. That adoration should belong to me. Coveting as a distinctive thing. Coveting is a longing or a craving for something that comes out of greed, not out of need. 
So covetingly says, yeah, I just want one. Remember that ad for HSV Holdens? I just want one. Breeding that covetous heart. And this guy is like that. He wants more, not out of need, but out of greed. You're not envying his neighbour. His neighbour might have had a lousy crop, but he's got more and now he wants to keep it. He has a covetous heart. He falls into that trap of, if I had blank, then I would be fine. You know what? I've actually said that before. You know, if we just hit to this point, you know, then we'd be okay. I'm wrong. I'm actually wrong when I say that. Why? Because all I'm expressing is my covetous heart. All I'm saying is, you know what? I know I've got this, but I want a bit more. And I think I need it, but actually it's about greed, not need. And this is why Jesus says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This is not what life is about. So I don't know about you, but I I think I'm like a rich fool. I've been very, very challenged as I read this passage. Why? Because I, I know that God wants my heart. And when my heart is directed to something that is not God, God is jealous for that. He says, ah, I want number one spot in your heart. It belongs to me. Rightfully, that spot is mine. He doesn't want anything else to have my affection. He wants it to be him. I know in my head that Jesus would be priority number one and that being his disciple ought to show that priority in my actions and my decisions. In fact, my love for Jesus and my faith is a little hollow, is it not, if I profess it but then don't display it. I can even speak it but then not live it. And so not until I'm actually making decisions that are consistent with what I've said and what I've professed, only then is my faith, real faith. And I know, at least in my head, I know that other people have been tested over this stuff. From cover to cover in the Bible, time and time again, God has said, hey, I want to check that I've got number one spot. Or maybe he says, hey, I'm going to demonstrate to you that I haven't got number one spot and that this is a problem. And then you see it living out. Do you want me to give you a few examples? I'd love to. Thanks for asking. Abraham. God says, hey, sacrifice that son of yours that you love so much. Oh, man. Could you do that? Who's Who's a parent here? Yeah, keep your hand up. If you'd be carting the fire up the hill and with the knife in your pocket. No way. That's a big ask. Way, way. That, that's, that's unbelievable. But he did it. Abraham passed that test. And why did God do it? To prove that he had number one spot. He wanted Abraham to be confident that God had number one spot in his life. Saul. Saul was asked, hey, don't rush off into battle before I've come and prayed with you and offered a sacrifice. Well, look, Sam's not here. It's really time to battle. Uh, Look, strategic uh, warfare is more important than, you know, spiritual ritual. So off I go. Fail. Fail that test. David was asked to let God deliver him the throne. 
rather than taking it himself. Did he pass that test? Yeah, he did. Multiple times he had the opportunity to take Saul's life and claim the throne. He stepped back. Esther was asked to risk her very life for saving, God, God, for saving God's people and she did that. Daniel was asked to risk his reputation and his life and he did that. The Israelites were asked to restore the temple before anything else when they went back out of exile. They did not do that. Joseph was asked to go ahead and marry a pregnant teenager. He did that. He did that. The rich young ruler approaches Jesus uh, during Jesus' ministry and, and Jesus says, hey, you've got a hard issue here. Go and sell everything that you own and give it away. Jesus, I don't know that Jesus honestly thought he would do it, but Jesus was going, putting his finger on what the real problem was for that guy. And why does Jesus, why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus put us, test us? I think the Bible gives us two reasons why God tests us like this. Number one, and you find it in Luke 12, 34. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you treasure will own your heart. Whatever you treasure will own your heart. It will demand your affection. It will guide your choices. It will set your priorities. It will dictate the direction of your life. And that, that thing that you treasure, that is the place that rightfully belongs to God. If God is king, that rightfully belongs to God. He wants his rightful place back and he's entitled to dethrone the things that we have put there instead. I'm going to say that again because that is a big statement when you sit down and chew on it. God is entitled to dethrone the things that we have installed above him in our priority list. And so when you get tested and you get put through the ringer and you go through a really hard, tough stop, I want to ask yourself that question. Is God simply dethroning something that I have put in his place? That's one reason. The second reason that I think God allows us to go through this exercise, this testing, is because it actually looks like Jesus. It actually looks like Jesus. Jesus displayed this very characteristic. If you want to be like Jesus, and God encourages us, he says, hey, what's my plan for you? I want you to become a bit more like Jesus every day. If we want that too, then we can expect something coming our way. It's a thing called sacrifice. We can expect sacrifice to be coming our way. God wants to restore his image in us and here's his image. It comes from Philippians chapter 2. Don't look to your own interests but each of you should look to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in the very nature of God didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage but rather he made himself nothing taking on the very nature of a servant He was made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself from the king of heaven right down to the death of a criminal. 
That is big time sacrifice. It's not just giving up your life. It's giving up your position in heaven and all the power and the glory and the world at his command and he gave it all up. If we want to be like Jesus, we can expect sacrifice to be coming our way. We can expect to be asked. They are the tests. They're the moments when God's saying, hey, do I have number one spot? He doesn't really need your money. He doesn't really need your house or your car or your real estate. But what he does want is to know that he's got number one spot. And if he has number one spot, then actually we don't mind if he has our money or he has our car or he has our home. Now you might think I've turned communist on you all of a sudden and I tell you to go and sell your stuff and give it to the poor. If you're thinking that way, that's not me speaking. That's God speaking. I honestly think that some of us are way, way too comfortable, happy that Jesus redeemed our soul, happy that he hasn't got to our wallet. Can I just say to you, this, this is not something on the side. This is not something on the side. You look at what the Bible says about money, this is not just, you know, the guy, Jesus, the person who saves us also says this about money. This is the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that money is the gospel. I'm saying this is the gospel. We are called not just to be saved by the gospel, but to live in the gospel. And the gospel is about the king of heaven giving up everything to have what he treasured most. The gospel is about us being saved by that person to live like that person. To be willing to give up everything to have that which we treasure most. It would seem a little consistent, wouldn't it? If Jesus, the King of Heaven, gave up everything so that he could save a people who choose to give up nothing. It would seem a little inconsistent. Let me tell you, and I'm going to share personally with you now, some of the things that I've been wrestling with as I have read and studied and chewed over this passage. Firstly, I know that money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And so I've been asking myself, am I in love with my money? Am I in love with my money? I don't know if I know the answer yet. I'm scared to know the answer, to be quite honest. But how can I prove if I'm not? If I say I'm not, how can I prove that? How might God seek to prove the answer to that question? If I say no, I'm not, and God says, well, yes, you are, I might have a test come in my way. You might too. Secondly, I don't live in a small house. I live in a large house and it's got a large yard. And the interest on my mortgage is impressive in, in one way. Uh, I can pay it. I can pay it because I'm a lawyer. I get well paid for my job. I would never cry poor. And you know what? I didn't buy that house thinking, I'm going to serve God with my money. I bought the house because I went, yeah, I like that place. I'll be comfortable there. And you know what? I'm feeling convicted about that. I'm really feeling convicted. Yeah, God can use my house. I can open it up and have people over and minister them with hospitality and all that. 
But that is not an excuse for me to keep what I treasure. That is not an excuse. So I've been asking myself this. Am I willing to sacrifice it? Should I even should I be waiting for God to force that issue? Or should I be the one to force that issue? If I sit back and wait, is that laziness? I don't know. But I tell you what, it really gets a bit uncomfortable when those things are just you know, twisting in twisting the knife a little bit. I like the I like the concept of twisting the knife, you know, God's word is a two edged sword and sometimes it goes in and twists. Um Thirdly, here's something else. We've got some plans for our place. We've got a big yard, yep, but it's pretty ugly. Uh, it's basically a paddock and, and we've got some plans. I want, a, I want a nice landscape. And every time, without fail, Castle attest to this, every time we get ready to launch into the next part of the plan and we've saved up to do it, something else will pop up and say, oh, we've just become aware of this need, this opportunity to... Send a person of Vanuatu on a mission team or so-and-so is just being diagnosed with something or, you know, one of our missionaries this or a church need that or, you know, or just, you know, Compassion wrote to me about a sponsor child or the sponsor child wrote to me and told me about the village. Something else always pops up and then I get torn. Am I being prudent by building my asset and sticking to my plan and whatever? Or am I being selfish? I don't know that these things are right or wrong necessarily because what matters is actually the state of my heart and I'm being forced to turn around and look inside and say, why am I making the kind of decisions that I'm making? Is it because of my a a good heart or not? And I go and question my heart and boy, that feels uncomfortable. Maybe you have that same experience. You've saved up. Maybe it's clothes, car, renovation, holiday. And when you get presented with another opportunity that better reflects God's priorities, you get torn. Maybe instead of Italy, we'll go to Rosebud. Lastly, we reviewed our budget not too long ago. Like the Commonwealth, uh, like the Commonwealth Government, we actually, as a family, had a bit of a structural deficit issue. Uh, and so we actually had to go and make some corrections. And looking back, you know what I reckon? I reckon I've preserved the things that I wanted to preserve and I reckon I'm not so proud anymore of the things that I cut. I could have made more personal sacrifice in order to preserve some of the other things that were for the benefit of others. But I didn't just do that. And now I'm feeling convicted. So let me ask yourself some let me ask you some application questions now that you've heard mine. Do you think your stuff is your stuff? What are you trying to hang on to? And why? Have you said thank you recently? Have you had something land in your lap like a bumper crop? Maybe it was a bonus. It's end of financial year, you know. Maybe it was a bonus. That's kind of like excess crops. What will you do with it? What do you worry about? What's on your worry list? Is it, you know, 
Oh, I'm worried that I've got so much blessings, I don't know what to do with it. Do you have a covetous heart? How might, how might God be testing you right now? How might God be testing you as to whether you have a covetous heart? Well, Jesus seems to use this man in the crowd as a launching place uh, for this next part of the passage as well. And so he turns to his disciples and it's unclear really whether everyone else in the crowd uh, was listening to this or not. But he, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, so this is why you don't need to worry. Why? Well, because we don't trust in money. We trust in God. And can God be trusted? Yes. Up here we all say, yes, God can be trusted. Yes? Yeah. But I don't know about you, I don't often act like God can be trusted. If I can see a way to achieve something, then I go about and I do it. I do it myself. I ask for help if I've run out of ways. And I don't ask for help if I can just do it. I verbally express my faith in God, but I'm not really satisfied unless I myself have a 100% watertight plan to make what I want to happen, happen. I need to remind myself of the gospel. And the gospel says what? It wasn't you, Andy. It wasn't you who did it. It was me. God says, it wasn't you. It's me. You don't need to do it. In fact, you can't do it. Can I guarantee my future? No, I can't. Can you guarantee your future? No, we can't. Not even with a great super fund. God can guarantee our future. And so we need to exercise our trust in God, not in money. These two passages are not just happen to be side by side. They are crucially connected. If I learn from the rich fool and say, okay, well I'm not going to chase money. I'm going to try to be rich towards God, but Jesus, how is it if I'm being rich towards God, who is going to fix it when things fail? What is, who's going to cushion my fall when I lose my job? Who's going to watch out for me when I stop earning money and retire? Who's going to fix things when everything goes bad? And Jesus' answer? God, your Father, will fix those things. God, your Father, is watching out. Check out how he looks after the birds and the flowers. Birds and flowers. I don't know about you, but when I see a bird on the road, you know, uh, it's been run over quite a few times and it's pretty horizontal. I don't really get a twinge of conscience about that. It's not that I hate birds. I just, I don't feel bad. It's a bird. Big deal. When I mow the lawn... I'd have a big trouble. I'd have a big problem if I felt bad for the flowers. Yeah, I'd be weeping. I'd be a mess. Right? I don't feel bad for the flowers. Right? And you know what Jesus says? God looks after those things. He clothes them so beautifully. He makes sure that birds have enough to to eat. If God will do that for the most insignificant in His creation, imagine what He does for you. He does not equate us. He doesn't say, God looks after flowers, therefore God looks after you. He says, God looks after flowers and they are way down the list. 
you are the pinnacle of God's creation, imagine how much more God will look after you. He doesn't say he will look after you the same. He says he will look after you more. Can I just also articulate one thing? I want to just distinguish here between concern, stress and worry. I want to tell you some things about worry and then I'm going to get you to use your blank piece of paper. Okay, concern. Concern is an expression or recognition of what matters. I'm concerned about this, that's how I think it matters. Stress. Stress is an engineering term. It means being under strain or being, under, or being stretched. It means I have some capacity and it's being used and maybe a little bit more. I'm coming close to breaking point. That's stress. But worry is different. Worry is anxious, troubled, uneasy and I have a disturbed peace of mind. I do not have peace of mind. I could be stressed and I, I live a lot of my life under stress. I'm stretched, I'm at capacity. But when I worry, I have no peace of mind. I'm actually very, very troubled. Here's some conclusions that we can take from what Jesus has said about worry. First of all, it's insulting to God. Worry is actually insulting to God because it says, I don't trust you. I don't know that I can trust you. Can I tell you the only cure for that is to get to know him? I don't know about you, the, most, the, most, the people you trust the best in your life, the people you trust the most, they're the people you know the best. Are they not? If you want to be able to trust God, you've got to know him. Secondly, worry is fruitless. It says actually worry is, a, is not a constructive exercise. If you worry a lot, says Jesus, you worry really hard, but you won't even be able to add one hour to your life I can't remember what the numbers are in hours for your life. Was it 60, 70,000 or something like that? But you can't even add one. Not a great payback for your efforts. So if I can't deliver even the smallest of benefits, really it's a fruitless exercise. Number three, it's a faith inhibitor. When I worry, I actually stop God from proving his faithfulness. You know, when I go swimming with my son, he's two and uh, almost three, he jumps off the edge of the pool into the water towards me. Sometimes I let him go underwater. Sometimes I'll catch him direct. But I would never, ever, ever let him drown. I would never let him suffer. I'll push him. I'll stretch him. I'll let him go underwater, learn to swim. But he does actually have to jump. In order for me to catch him, first he has to jump. And until he jumps, he has knowledge that I'm there, but until he, when he jumps, he has faith. He applies his knowledge and he says, yep, I trust you, and he jumps. Fourthly, worry stifles generosity. When the rich fool started worrying about what he had, he started to make plans for himself, not plans to share or to benefit others. Fifthly, worry speaks about my heart. Worry is actually a little thing that exposes my heart. It tells you where my confidence lies and it tells you what I treasure. If you say, Andy, what's troubling you? And I say, oh, it's a this and that. What I'm really saying is, yeah, I place a really high priority in these things and that's getting to me. It paints a little picture of my heart. So I'm going to ask you to do this. With your one piece of paper, 
You're one blank page. And I'm not going to ask you to hand it in. I thought about actually handing them in. I thought, no, you know what? Better for you to have this as a reminder. On the top two-thirds, so let's get a piece of paper. On the top two-thirds, I would like you to draw a picture of a cross. Not, not noughts and crosses, a cross, a crucifix. If you haven't got a pen, there was a few circulating around. Has everyone got a pen now? Yep. You're all okay? So, it doesn't have to be a fancy one. Don't worry about putting Jesus on it or anything like that. Just the purpose of the exercise is a reminder. And on the bottom third of your page, down underneath the cross, I want you to write down the things that you are worrying about. It might be people. It might be a relationship issue. It might be your security. It might be something that's completely out of your control. I want you to write those things down. There might be one or there might be many. That's okay. I want you to write them down there. You don't have to show anyone. Write down the things that really are worrying you. And I want you to take it home. I want you to put it somewhere where you see it. Because I want you to be reminded, as I have been reminded by this passage, you know what? God has got those things. Do we feel like he doesn't know? Sometimes I feel like that. You know? I read, my, I read this and I say, da, 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 da. so don't worry. Yeah, yeah, it's fine for you to say, but you haven't got this worry. Yeah, God does have that worry. He's got it and I shouldn't. What does your worry list say about your heart? And since you can't change your heart by yourself, will you pray with me and ask God to change our heart so that we are concerned with the things that he's concerned about and not things of our own self-interest? Pray with me. Lord God, if you are who you say you are, then I can't think of a more trustworthy person. Lord, you engaged in a plan of salvation that was the most outrageous act of generosity and sacrifice, more than we have ever seen. And you did it to keep a promise and you did it to be true to character and you did it to show us the thing that you treasure most, the people that you made in your own image, your very treasure. But help our life decisions to line up with that reality. Help our hearts to receive it and accept it as true even though it goes against the grain, even though we can't really easily get comfortable with this notion of letting go. Lord, help us know, help us listen with open hearts and open ears. Help us listen to the gospel time and time and time again. May it make an imprint on our heart so that what is in our heart also look like the gospel. Lord, take us out now. Don't give us a comfortable Sunday. 
Give us a challenging one. Don't give us a good week. Give us a testing one. Lord, we want to be like you. And although it's uncomfortable, we want to be changed. We ask those things in the name of Jesus.